Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come now to open your word, and we are so thankful for it. We're thankful for uh, how you have shown us uh, yourself, how you have revealed to us who you are, the greatness that you possess, the greatness that um, you express. God, we pray that as we look at uh, your word today, that first and foremost we would understand that better, that we would see your hand uh, in our lives, in history, that we would see your call and your challenge to be a people who who stand for you, who who call out to a world that needs to know of your salvation, a people who minister to the totality of who a person is and who want to see you glorified in all that we do. Lord, use this time for your purposes, for your direction, your guidance. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Today we come to the end of our um, You Asked For It series. Um, the next couple sermon series will come out of that as well, but as far as specific topics, individual sermons that uh, we're dealing with today will be the last in, in that particular series. And it's one that I, um, I, I anticipate getting whenever uh, I do this sort of thing. Every time I've asked members, what would you like me to preach on? Whether it was something like we're doing now or just in conversations, you know, what would you, what kind of sermon would you want to hear? Inevitably, one of the topics that's brought up is the end times. Can, can you preach a sermon series on Revelation, or can you preach a sermon on the end times, or are we living in the last days, or, or those sorts of things? And, and, and that is a curiosity. That is a, an issue that's been a part of church uh, work and church uh, reality since the church began. I mean, when you look in the New Testament itself, you find people uh, asking those questions of the apostles and, and trying to, to get from them some information, some, some guidance. Uh, Peter talks, for instance, about those who are, who are ridiculing believers about the return of Christ, saying, well, where is he? It's been all these years and he's still not here, which I find fascinating because Peter died probably uh, around 60 A.D., so that's within, what, 30 years of, of Christ's death, and, and people were already saying, what's taking him so long? And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's the same question. What's taking him so long? What's, what's going on here? What, what is the delay? And so it is, it's, it's obviously something that's on our mind. It's something that, that's kind of before us. Now, I, I will admit that there are kind of two perspectives on this, two things that we see uh, Christians do when it comes to the issue of last times. There's, there's kind of two groups, two general groups out there uh, in terms of their approach to this particular question. One is the group that really would rather just avoid the topic altogether. They're, they're the people who are just like, you know what? I, I don't need a sermon on that. I don't need to study that. I don't want to look at that. Um, you want to know what I am? Just call me a, a pan-millennialist. That is, it's all going to pan out in the end. I'm, I'm good with that, you know. Um, but that's their approach. Some, because of fear, you know, the way it's been presented in the past, it just kind of creates a sense of fear and dread in their life. Some, because they just seen people become over obsessed with it and they, they just don't want to be that so uh there's there's those people 
And then there are the people who are obsessed with the topic. They'll read the books. They'll visit blogs online. They'll they'll listen to sermon after sermon after sermon on it. And, and, and it's just it's everything to them. And, and I, I want to just say that, that we need both those groups in the church. We do. We, we need both. We need, we need the ones who say, you know what, it's, it's all going to work out. Why? Because we need some balance. Okay, we need, we need some perspective sometimes for people to just say, you know what, it's okay. Whatever happens, happens. But we also need some people who are digging into the Word and who are trying to discover what the Word has to say and trying to encourage and learn from what uh, the Bible tells us about these subjects. So we, we need both of those groups in this issue and in dealing with this matter. Now, it's, it's a subject that, that I used to be in that second group. I used to be obsessed with it. When I was in college, uh, especially, man, it was something I was reading every book I could get my hands on. I was reading all the different views, um, you know, trying to understand where people are coming from, what they're, what they're seeing, all those sorts of things. So, so and, and I've been in that kind of period where I'm like, you yeah, know, okay, whatever. So I've been in both those groups at different points in my life. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying now that I hold the perfect balance in, in how I do things. I, I probably don't. But I, I do think there is a, a mindset and perspective that we need to develop. And that is simply this. We need to do whatever we do based upon what God's Word actually says. Not on some derived conclusions of, of how things, how we'd like things to work out, how we want things to, to happen, uh, those sorts of things. And so and so that's that's kind of where I come from. That's that's my approach to this topic. And, and I'll just be real honest. There's probably some of you here today who are not going to agree with what I have to say, and that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Uh, all I would encourage you to do is please dig into the Word. Let the Word guide your conclusions on this on this subject and 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 on these issues. And, and let me also just say. There are some things that I think are non-negotiable about this subject. There are some things that I think if you want to call yourself a Christian, you have to believe. Okay, And, and I would say that is the case because Christianity has demonstrated it. That regardless of how you look at certain details and how certain things play out, there are three things that constantly, consistently appear and occur in every Christian explanation of the end times. Every one of them. Okay? And these are these are three, what I would argue from a biblical standpoint, from a historical standpoint, are non-negotiables when it comes to talking about the end times. Things that you have to hold to, have to believe. Number one, Jesus' return will be visible and physical. Okay? Number one, Jesus' return will be visible and physical. That is, he will literally return to this earth. We will see him. We will understand what's going on. That is that is a it is a precept, it is a belief, it is a perspective that Christians throughout the centuries, and I believe scripture clearly teaches, is absolute. It's not going to be some mystical, spiritual, hidden uh, reality in which, you know, souls are just absorbed or whatever. It's the literal physical return of Jesus is a part of what Scripture teaches. Number two, when he returns, the dead will be raised, physically raised from the dead. 
there will be a resurrection. Okay, uh, those uh, those who have who have passed. It, again, it won't be some spiritual, mystical thing. It'll be a physical resurrection of the body, renewed, changed, transformed, but the same body nonetheless. Number three, judgment will take place. That when he returns, there will be judgment. There will be a, a, a reckoning for how one has responded to him and how one has responded to his place and his role as Lord of the universe. Those three things are consistently found in every orthodox, every sound Christian teaching on the subject. If you have trouble with one of those three things, you're outside of Christian orthodoxy. Okay. Now, when you step beyond those, you start to get to lots of nuances, lots of different perspectives uh, in terms of how do we deal with the end times? How do we understand the end times? Are we living in the last days? All those sorts of questions arise. And, and um, I don't really generally like to preach my view of the end times and how it's all going to play out from the pulpit. I generally like to teach in an environment where people can ask questions, where people can challenge, where people can say, yes, but what about this? Or I've heard this, or I've experienced this. And, and the reason for that is because there is so much information and there are so many different views out there that a lot of times what I found in, in my 30 plus years of, of ministry is a lot of people are combining a lot of things that really can't be combined or people are confusing a lot of views that really don't go together and, and they're trying to they're trying to make sense because they've heard so many different views that that they're trying they're grabbing well I kind of like this and well I kind of like that too and and they're pulling in things that really don't logically or biblically fit together but it's kind of what they've been served and what they've been been taught in, over the years. And so I, I generally like to take the topic of eschatology or end times in a setting where I'm teaching, where people can, can say, wait a minute, what about this? And so I don't generally do it from the pulpit, except for those three things that I just said. Okay, uh, I will boldly and, and unapologetic, unapologetically proclaim those three truths over and over and over again. Jesus' return is physical. There is a resurrection that that will accompany that, and um, there's a judgment that comes at that time. But let's talk about just the broader issue of last days. Are we even living, without getting into specific details of last days, let's talk about the topic of last days. And for that, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 24. And, and I think this is a, a key passage for this topic because... It's the disciples literally asking Jesus, are we living in the last days? And I figure if, if I'm going to answer the question, are we living in the last days, my answer coming from Jesus is probably the best place to go for that. Okay? And, and so that, that's where I, I want us to, to, to look um, this morning. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 24, and just looking at the, the first three verses because that kind of sets the stage, and then we're going to move through 24 and 25 together here um, in terms of what's handled there. Let's see what has, what's said there. It says, As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. And he replied to them, Do you see all of these things? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us when... Will these things happen? 
And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, the last days? Okay? So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's walking around. He's serving. He's ministering there uh, in the, the final days before his death. Okay? And as he's leaving the temple, he looks at it, and the disciples said, isn't that temple beautiful? And it was gorgeous. I mean, Herod's temple, the remodeling and everything he did with the temple, made it the largest temple in all the Roman Empire. Okay? And it was the most ornate and beautiful. Gold all over the place. Some of the descriptions we have from contemporaries, it's hard to imagine how gorgeous this temple was. And the disciples' attention is drawn to it. Look at that temple, Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It won't be long before not one stone is left on top of another stone of that temple. And I'm sure when he said that, the disciples were like, what? <laughs> really? And so they continue walking, and Mount of Olives is right across this, the, the valley. There's a this, this small valley right across the valley from the temple where they could look at the temple. And they're sitting there, and, and they're probably thinking, and, and they come to Jesus you know, that night, and they're like, okay, you got to tell us. When is this going to happen? When is the end of the age? When are you going to enter into your kingdom? We've been with you now for three years, okay? We, we've heard you preach. We've heard you teach. We've, we've seen the people respond. We've seen you bring people back from the dead. We've seen you heal individuals. Now you say the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, that has to be a sign. That has to be an expression of the coming of the kingdom. When's it going to happen, Jesus? And they ask, they ask those two questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? That's the first question. You know, when will these things happen? And then the second question is, what is the sign of your coming? Is there something that's going to trigger this? Is going to be something we can see that will know this is the end. This is the last days. And so Jesus then begins to to answer those questions. Now, the, the issue we face as interpreters today is when is he answering the first question and when is he answering the second question? Okay, when is he answering the question of when's the temple going to be destroyed and when is he answering the question of when the end of the age is? Now, what do we see in this passage? And, and what I've discovered in my study over the years is that a lot of end times and, and their description of the, the path of how this is all going to happen and all that comes back to these, this chapter in particular. comes back to Matthew 24 because this is the passage where Jesus says, these are the signs of the end times. This, this is how it's going to happen. But what I've also discovered is, in my opinion, a failure by many to distinguish when Jesus is talking about the temple and when he's talking about the end times, or to correctly distinguish those two things. And what you'll generally get is this kind of answer. The way I know, whether he's talking about the, the temple destruction or the time to come, the, the end times to come, is I read the passage and I ask, has this happened yet? And if it hasn't happened, then that applies to the end. And if it has happened, then that applies to the temple. And there's a certain logic to that. There's a, there's a pragmatic perspective there. There's a, there's a logic to saying, okay, Jesus is answering these two questions. If it's happened, 
then that's the past. If it hasn't happened, that's the future. But there's a problem there. And this is the problem. Jesus, in answering this question, he uses a type of language called apocalyptic language. It's something that arose in about 200 B.C. Uh, in Judaism. We start to see it starting to flourish then and starting to grow then. And, and it, it, it's a different way of talking about things. And it involves images. Okay, This is what the whole book of Revelation is. When you be, read the book of Revelation, you're like, there's some odd images here. There's some weird things going on here. What is this creature? What's, why, why are they being described this way? Well, they're being described that way, and those creatures and those things are being described that way because that's a specific type of language called apocalyptic language. Again, it started about 200 B.C., as far as we can tell from the records we have, from the, from the text that we have in our hands. And one of the things about that language is it's hyperbolic. It, 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 it's, it, it exaggerates things sometimes to make a point, to create a feeling. And I want to point you just in this particular passage to verse 29 of chapter 24. Okay, this is one of those passages that people look at and says, this has to be the end because there's no way that happened in Jesus' day. <laughs> it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay? And, and you read that and you think, that has to be the end of time. That has to be the end of the age. That has to be the last days. It, it can't be anything else. Because, I mean, you're talking about total collapse of the cosmos here. You know, the, the sun's darkened, the moon's not giving us light, stars are falling from heaven. That, that, that's... Man, that's in time stuff, okay? But here's the thing. When you jump over to Acts chapter 2, okay, Peter there is preaching at Pentecost, okay? He's, he's, he's preaching. You've had the Holy Spirit descend on, on the church, and now they're proclaiming to, the, to this large crowd the truth of who Jesus is and, and what Jesus has done. And notice what Peter says there and in verse 16 and verse 19 through 21. He says, looking at these events, verse 16, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. In other words, as Peter's looking at the, the events of Pentecost, and he's preaching there, he says, what's happening here was prophesied by the prophet Joel. We're seeing Joel's prophecy play out right here in front of us. Okay? Now, what did Joel say? What is it that Peter quotes as Joel saying in this passage? That begins in verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above the signs and the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does Peter say there? Peter says Joel's words about the blood and the fire and the smoke and the darkness and all of those things is happening right there in front of them as he's preaching. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the apostles and, and Jesus as well, living in those days, use that language not necessarily to talk about literal physical realities that are going on in the world, they use that language to say what? 
God is doing something big. God is doing something amazing. God is doing something beyond our imagination. That Pentecost was a moment in time when God moved in a radical way to transform life itself. And so, as we see that, we see what? We see that the language does not necessarily point to something that literally, physically has to happen, which does what? It calls into question that whole premise of if it's happened, it must, or if it hasn't happened, then it must be in the future. It must be something to look forward to. The language itself doesn't permit us to be that precise, that exact on that particular issue. Okay? The language itself is, is saying something more, more than that. It's saying something grander than that, something more than significant. Now, the question that might arise at this point is, well, might there be another fulfillment? Okay, you had the fulfillment there at Pentecost that was kind of symbolic. Might there be a, a literal fulfillment out there in the future someplace? And to that, all I can say is perhaps. I don't know the future. I, I can't see the future. I, I don't know. But... There's nothing in the text, there's nothing in Scripture that demands that. There's nothing in the words or how the words were understood, how the words would have been spoken, that demands that's a conclusion we draw. And if the rest of the narrative, the rest of the text surrounding Jesus' words there in verse 29 point us in a different direction, then then. I personally want to go with where that direction those words point. In other words, for me, it's not just the individual phrases. It's not just the individual images we need to look at. It's the entire context, the flow of the argument that Jesus is making here that we need to look at and what he needs to say. And so with that in mind, let's look at the two questions and and where I think Jesus is answering each of them. Question one. When will these things take place? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? My personal uh, approach here, my personal interpretation, is that verses 4 through 35 answer that question. That in most of chapter 24, most of what's going on here, Jesus answering that particular issue, dealing with the destruction of the temple. Now, the destruction of the temple, in case you don't know, happened in 70 A.D. Forty years one generation from when Jesus spoke these words. That generation thing is going to come back in just a moment. But hold on to it. Okay? So it happened in 70 AD. 40 years, which is a biblical generation, from when Jesus spoke these words. Just as he promised it would. Okay? So what does he say here? How does, how does this break down? Well, he starts with giving us some general explanations of of what life is going to be like connected to, related to the fall of the temple, but not just the fall of the temple. Remember, he's, he's, he's bringing these two ideas kind of together, but also what life's going to be like until his return. Beginning here in verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many. And you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Because these things must take place. Okay? So, what's he saying? 
This is that wars and rumors of wars. I don't know how many times I've heard wars and rumors of wars is a sign of the end of time. But is that what Jesus says here? Look at how verse 6 says. But this is not the end. Notice that? The very last thing he says there in verse 6. You'll hear the wars and rumors of wars. There'll be false messiahs. There'll be false leadership. All these other things. But this is not the end. In other words, Jesus quite plainly says, these things you're going to see, these things you're going to experience, they're not signs of the end times. They're not signs of the last days. This is not the end. Okay? He repeats this idea later on in verse 18, verse 8. Because he goes on and he says, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are what? The beginning of labor pains. Which again says what? It's not the end. What would be the end when you're talking about labor pains? The birth of the child. Right? So what do labor pains do? They tell you something's headed your way, but you have no idea when exactly that something's going to happen. Okay. I, I imagine if we took a poll here, took a, took a survey of women who have given birth, we would get wildly different answers as to how long your labor lasted. Okay. One of my, one of my sisters-in-law, her labor lasted two hours. Two hours from the very first pain contraction, very first uh, something's happening here to when the baby was come. I know a lot of women, they're like, dang, I wish that had been me. Because I've heard of other women who, who went 48 hours or longer, long time. What is it? The, the, these labor pains are what? They're, they're reflections that something's going to happen, but they're not something that, that is a clue that it's when it's going to happen. Okay. And on top of that, and I think this is important, it's repeatable. Because that's what labor pains are. They're repeatable. They, they happen over and over and over again until what? Until the birth actually takes place. And I think that is what, what Jesus is getting at here in, in this passage. He's talking about, okay, as we're headed toward the last days, as we're headed toward that direction. I'm going to focus here on the temple, but I want you to understand that the temple is not necessarily directly connected to the last days in terms of timing. It's connected to it because it's a smaller picture of things that are going to happen over and over and over again until the last days actually occur. Okay. That from this time forward, we're going to see wars. We're going to see nation against nation. We're going to see earthquakes in various places. We're going to see all these experiences. He talks about the persecution that Christians will encounter and tribulation that's going to accompany that. The abomination that brings desolation is what? That's the destruction of the temple. Now, how do I know that? Because that's what it is in Daniel. That's what it is in Revelation. So that's what it needs to be here in, in Matthew as well. It's the destruction of the temple. That's 70 A.D. Okay, what's, what's the de desolation he's talking about? He's talking about 
a temple that's been desolated. That's, it's all in reference to, to what he said, what he's uh, suggesting here. He goes on to talk about uh, uh, the coming of uh, the Son of Man. He, he starts to move in that direction, verses 29 through, through 31. And then he tells the, the parable of the fig tree. And I've heard a lot of interpreters talk about how this, the fig tree, that has to be a reference to the reformulation of Israel as a nation. That that's what's going on here. And my question is simply this. And again, I've read, I can't say I've read all the books, but I've read just about as many books as you can imagine on this subject. Why do you say that's a picture of the reformulation of Israel? There's nothing historically that makes that case. There's nothing biblically that makes that case. There's nothing anywhere that links the fig tree and its reformulation to the re or, and its growth, its existence to Israel's reformulation as a nation. There's nothing there. It's simply someone's fanciful uh, attachment of the idea. This is a parable. What is a parable? A parable is a normal occurrence that happens every day in life that's meant to be a picture of a spiritual lesson or consequence. Jesus tells many parables in Scripture. What's he doing with each one of those? He's trying to teach us a spiritual truth, something about our relationship with God. So what is this parable? Well, he taught, I'll just read it. Learn this, learn this lesson from the fig tree. Okay. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that it is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what's he saying there? Well, leaves, the end of the summer. He tells us that in the passage. He says that the leaves, the presence of them tells you are at the end of the summer. He says that it's near. In other words, there's nothing more to stand in the way of his return. But then he says, this generation will certainly not pass away. What generation? Now, those who argue that the fig tree is the reformulation of Israel have argued that it's that generation, the generation that sees Israel reform as a nation. Within that generation, the return will happen. And so you have people uh, such as Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth who argued that Christ had to return by 1988. He had to. Why? Because Israel was reformed as a nation in 48, 40 years, 88. So somewhere between that, it has to happen. Well, I think we can all agree it didn't happen in 1988. Okay. And so then they start shifting it. Well, maybe it's 67 when Israel won the Seven-Day War. And that's what's going on. Well, we're 40 years away from that. That's 2007. That didn't happen either. When you see a phrase or a sentence with the word this in it, anywhere in Scripture, your first question, and this is the English grammarian coming out of me, is what is the antecedent? What is this? What is the this that the this is referring to? Okay, And if you don't have any clues in the sentence to tell you what it is, then he's clearly talking to the group he's talking to at that moment. 
this generation that I'm talking to right now, all of this that I'm talking about so far, everything I've covered so far, this generation that I'm talking to right now will see this happen. Which means what? The disciples to whom Jesus is talking to. Within a generation of this conversation, everything he's covered previously will happen. Forty years from when he said this, what happened? The fall of the temple in Jerusalem. That tells us that everything he said previous to this was a reference to the falling of the temple, not to the end times. This is further confirmed when we move into verse 36, which I believe Jesus talks about is now transitioning to the end of time. Notice what he says here, and this is big. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Now hear that. Hear that very clearly. Concerning the day, the hour, the time of Christ's return, the time of His kingdom coming in fullness. What does He say there? I don't know. Jesus says that. Now hear that. Because you ask me a question and I say, I don't know. You're like, well, okay. No big deal. It's Tim. There's obviously a lot of things he doesn't know. And there are. A lot of things I don't know. But when Jesus himself, God the Son, says, I don't know when this is going to happen, that's probably a pretty big clue as to what our understanding and perspective of the issue should be. We don't know. Okay? Now, I've heard people say, well, Jesus says day or hour. He doesn't mean season or year or decade or something like that. No, that's not the point of his day or hour. The point of his day or hour is to say, I don't know. I can't give you a timing. Which does what? In many ways, it undercuts the whole idea of signs of the end. If there are specific signs that we can look at and we define, then we should be able to know. That's the basis of the hundreds of guesses that have been made of when Christ is going to return over the years. That's the basis of, uh, of that idea. Okay. What is the sign of his return? Jesus gives us one sentence in this whole thing where he tells us what the sign of his return is. It's in verse 30, just a little bit before that. Then the sign, it's the only time in this whole discourse he uses that phrase, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what's the sign of Christ's return according to Jesus here? Christ's return. You want to know when he's coming back? When he comes back. You'll know. That's the sign. Now, this is very consistent with what God does elsewhere. In Exodus, as he's calling Moses to go deliver Israel out of Egypt, and Moses is nervous. He's all worried. He's like, God, how do, how do I know you're with me? How, how do I know this is going to work? Can you give me some signs? And God says, okay, here's your sign, Moses. This is your sign that you'll know I'm with you. 
when you're back here with the Israelites worshiping here at Mount Sinai, then you'll know I was with you. That's your sign. Okay? I'm sure Moses is like, well, thanks a lot. You know? What's the point? This is the point. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, if I gave you the signs, if I gave you the specifics of exactly when it's going to happen, then what? You don't need to trust me. You don't need to walk with me. You don't need to grow in your knowledge and understanding of me. All you need to do at that point is just what? Look for those signs. And when those signs play out, then, okay, now I can start to get serious. God's point all along from Exodus to Matthew to Revelation is simply this. Walk with me. Know me. Understand me. Have a relationship with me. Terrible things are going to happen over and over and over again. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, all these other things. They're going to happen over and over again. Don't look for a specific sign. The sign will be when I'm here. Walk with me. Understand me. Have a healthy and appropriate response to evil. Live with hope. So are we living in the last days? Yes. In in the sense that nothing remains. Nothing remains to happen. Christ could return at any moment. He could return before I finish this message. I truly believe that. But no, in the sense of markers that give us in-time clocks or, or, or how to operate. Now, how do I know that? I know that based upon other biblical references to the end, to the last days. When the Bible uses the phrase, the last days, it uses it referring to everything from when Christ ascended to right now. In 1 John 2.18, John says, Children, it is the last hour. We are living in the last days. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, I want you to know he's here. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. This is the last time. 1 John 2.18. Antichrist, plural, are here. We are living in the last days. James 5.8, you also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. It can happen any moment. This is an inspired writer of the book of James, the brother of Jesus, saying it can happen now. So if you want to say it couldn't happen until Israel was reformulated or, or those sorts of things that sometimes people argue, you are disagreeing with James. James says it could happen any moment. So either James was mistaken or your premises are mistaken. But John goes on to say in chapter 6, the Gospel of John, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. So you have throughout the New Testament, what? All of these references to the last day, the last hour, the time of Christ's return. And all of them say from when Christ ascended into heaven to whenever he eventually returns, that's all the last days. 
So are we living in the last days? Yes. Are there markers that give us a time clock? No. I don't believe the Bible teaches that there are. As Jesus continues, I'll wrap this up quickly. As Jesus continues, after he said these things about the last days that no one knows, not even the Son, he then proceeds to give us five parables that I believe further explain what he wants us to understand about how to live in the last days, how to live in the intervening time between when Christ returns and when Christ, uh, or when Christ ascended and when Christ returns. And, and I believe these parables answer further the question of the timing. He starts in verses 43 and 44 of chapter 24 by telling us essentially this, Christ's return is totally unexpected. He, this is the thief in the night imagery. What is the thief in the night imagery? It's not, it's not a, a secret taken away. It's what? It's you don't know when a thief's going to come. They can come at any time. And when they do come, it's a surprise. And so that's where Jesus starts. He says, it'll be like that. Parable 2 is the parable of the faithful and unfaithful servants. Verses 45 through 51 uh, of chapter 24. And, and I think this parable is teaching us what? That Christ's return will happen sooner than we're expecting. Because if you read the parable, what's going on here? You, you see these, you see this servant, okay, and, and he's ready when the master returns, even though the master returns earlier than expected. What's Jesus saying? He's saying to his, he's saying to believers, he's saying to those who are his. Be constantly doing the work of the Lord because I can come back anytime. I don't want to be embarrassed when I come back. Okay? You, you want to hear uh, the phrases, good and faithful servant. You, you want to experience that. So Christ's return is going to happen sooner than expected. But parable 3 in 25, 1 through 13 is the parable of the ten brides. These are the, the brides, the, the virgins who, whose oil runs out. Okay? And then they go to the others whose oil didn't run out because they, they took care of things. And they say, give us some of your oil. And they're like, why should we give you some of our oil? We took care of things. You should have been ready. What's the point of this one? That Christ's return is later than expected. Okay, Don't waste all your resources. Don't, don't you know, get so tied up in an in-time thing that, that you, you sell all your things. We, we've all heard those stories. I mean, you had the Heaven's Gate cult who uh, you had, what was it, almost three dozen people who committed suicide because they believed Jesus was about to return. In 2011, you had Harold Camping who said, Christ's return is certain it's about to happen. And because of his teaching, because of the, the fear that, that he uh, invested in people of, of what was going to happen and what was going to take place at that at that time, there was a mother in California who tried to kill her two daughters because she didn't believe they were believers and didn't want them to have to go through the tribulation they'd have to go through if when Christ returned. So she tried to, to cut their throats with razor blades. Okay. Christ returns later than expected, which means what? We've got to be patient. We've got to invest our resources appropriately. We've got to do the things God's called us to do continuously, constantly, without wasting these things, without selling these things, without buying into this, giving up 
mentality that so many people have developed. This is further illustrated in parable 4, the parable of the talents in verses 14 through 30. In terms of what preparation looks like, it's good stewardship of what God has given us. God has given us resources, and we need to be using them for His glory to spread His kingdom, to further the gospel, not hiding them, not protecting them, not preserving them, not being afraid of the wrath when He returns, but doing what we're supposed to do. And then parable 5 is the parable of the final judgment, the sheep and the goats. And I want you to see, I want you to observe what is the basis of the division between the sheep and the goats here? Because both the sheep and the goats say, Lord, we did great things in your name. Both of them. But Jesus' response is, I was hungry and you gave me nothing or something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. That's how he's distinguishing those who did those things versus those who didn't. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, in the intervening time, engage this world. Minister to the people around you. Live lives of service. Live lives that, that make a difference in the oppressed, that make a difference in those who are hurting. Feed those who are hungry. Take care of those who are hurting. Don't say, well, Christ is going to come. We'll just take care of that. Don't develop the mentality that says, you know, I'm here to save your soul, but you're on your own with the rest of it. That's not a biblical perspective of evangelism. From the Bible standpoint, when we work to see people transformed, when we make disciples, we're interested in the transformation of the entire person, not just, quote, their soul. And so we minister to the entire person. We serve, we work, we function. And so Jesus' mindset here is, you don't know when I'm coming. This is the truth of the matter. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be sooner than some expect. It's going to be later than others expect. Spend your time wisely. Engage your culture. And reveal the glory of God in doing so. And in that way, you are my sheep. You're my people. You're doing what I've called you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. We thank you that we can put our confidence in you, our trust in you, that it's not about the signs, all of these check boxes to tick off, but that it's about knowing you. And that's something that we can appreciate and understand and relish right now. Whether you come in the next few moments or Terry, another hundred years, that we can live lives transformed by your power, walking in your way, and seeing hope offered to a world that's lost any sense of what hope looks like. Help us, Lord, to be engaged first and foremost in communicating your gospel and seeing your kingdom at work here. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.